Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial and podcast on the WWWs. We are the Dogs. We are the Australian Council for the Defence of Government Schools. We've been on 3CR now for a long time and welcome to our loyal listeners and if you're new, welcome to you as well. Um, just to briefly describe one of those we're going to be hearing in the last, or the next hour, I should say. Um, look, we deal with issues to defend public education in Australia because it's constantly under attack and 3CR provides us a platform to do that platform you don't get on mainstream media. Um, we deal with various issues in, uh, that surround the attack on public education. One of them is, of course, the privatisation, um, the moves not just to privatise power and privatise water and privatise everything else, but to privatise education. And Australia is not the only place in the world that that's happening to. It's also happening in most of the English-speaking world. And because now we're going to be talking about our press releases, which we put out every week. In fact, we put them out for 715 weeks because this is press release number 715. And it relates directly to the privatisation of public education in the United States. Now, here in Australia, we're halfway along the road to privatisation of our public education system. And in Australia, it's taken half a century to... Firstly, undermine the centralised bureaucracies established in the 19th century to protect the public schools, the teachers in those schools and the children in those schools. Secondly, it's taken half a century to divert billions and billions of dollars in taxpayers' funds to religious administrations, greedy for those funds, greedy for jobs for the boys, greedy for power over politicians and, in the case of pedophile priests, access to vulnerable children because the billions and billions of dollars of taxpayers' funds going to religious administrations, which administer religious schools, which now we know have a large number, a very large number, of pedophile priests, um, in, certainly in the Catholic sector and across all sectors, truth to tell. In Australia, we're halfway down the road to privatisation, and it's taken half a century for us to undermine public confidence in the public system through snide media reports, expensive advertising on behalf of private schools and, of course, appeals to the insecure middle-class parents and, of course, basically downright unchallenged lies. And when I say unchallenged lies, of course they're challenged. They're challenged here on the DOGS program on 3CR 855 on the AM dial. But in spite of all of this over the last half centuries, our public system of education has held up and educates the majority of Australian citizens and produces an informed electorate that keeps bubbling up from the grassroots, demanding a fair go for all of Australia's children. Now, the plutocrats in their harbourside mansions, or the autocrats from Kuyong and Kirribilli and Warringah, have not yet imposed their will on the Australian electorate. Although it may prove a poison chalice, Gonski 2.0 still adheres to some form, some form of egalitarian rhetoric at least. But, given Australia's dependence on American developments, will the American public system fall victim to the billionaires of Trump's corporation? Now, thanks very much to John Foster, a regular listener, so thanks going out there to you, John, who's provided the following information. Now, this information has been provided um, via the wonderful, wonderful wonders of the, the internet, of course, and it's an article by a fellow called Michael Valdon. Um, who was uh, writing for the website truthdig.com. And he says, 
<sighs> Where are Charlie and Dave? Mrs. Koch's two mischievous boys. Now, the Koch brothers, Koch brothers or Koch brothers, um, have stayed out of the national limelight since the White House was acquired by Trump and company. The Koch brothers, or the Koch brothers, by the way, um, are very powerful right-wing lobbyists, if you don't know, in the United States. Um, if, you, if you wanted to find out about um, um, Mrs. Koch's two mischievous boys, Charlie and Dave, you can actually go on the WWWs and find out. But they've gone missing since Trump's been the president. But that doesn't mean the two right-wing billionaire brats are any less active in trying to supplant American democracy with their laissez-faire fairyland plutocracy. In fact, in late June, you could have found them in one of their favourite hideaways, with about 400 other uber-wealthy rascals plotting some political hijinks for the next year's election. This is, in fact, the Koch Boys Billionaires Club, which meets annually at some luxury resort to schmooze, strategize, and hear a select group of GOP elected officials kiss up to them, then throw money into a big pot to finance the Cox planned financial takeover of America. It costs $100,000 per person just to turn up to the three-day Cox fest, but participants are also expected to give generously to the brothers' goal of jumping $400 million into buying the 2018 elections. Now, this year, this group gathered in Colorado Springs at the ultra-Orthodox Broadmoor Hotel and Resort, owned by the brothers' billionaire pal and right-wing conspirator, Philip Onsch... Oh, I have to say this right. Be very careful. Anschutz. Um, along with recent political triumphs that these elites celebrated in the Broadmoor's posh ballroom after the defeat this year of the Colorado's tax hike to fix the state's crumbling roads... After all, who needs adequate roads when you can arrive in a private jet or helicopter? Now, this attitude of Cox-privileged cohorts explains why the public is shut out of these candid sessions. A staffer for the Cox-Conflab hailed such no-tax, no-roads policy as the renaissance of freedom. But for the privileged, that is, freedom to prosper at the expense of everyone else. Now, this self-absorbed cabal of spoiled, plutocratic brats intends to abandon our nation's core democratic principle of we're all in this together. If they kill that uniting concept, they kill America itself. This agenda includes killing such working class needs as the minimum wage and social security and privatising everything from healthcare to, and this is where it gets to the point, public education. For example, Betsy DeVos, who is the education secretary now in America, and her husband are part of this Koch Brothers Kotiri. They are lucky enough to have inherited a big chunk of a multi-million dollar fortune from Daddy DeVos, a master of shady Amway Corporation. Remember Amway? Yes, they made a lot of money, and Betsy DeVos has it now. But what they've done with their Amway inheritance is certainly not the American way. The DeVosses are publishing plutocratic policies that reject our country's one-for-all, all-for-one egalitarianism. In particular, Betsy DeVos has spent years and millions of dollars spreading the right-wing's ideological nonsense that public education should be completely privatised. She advocates turning our tax dollars over to for-profit outfits, even to private schools that exclude people of colour, the poor and the disabled, as well as for profiteering schools known to cheat students and taxpayers. Now, bizarrely... Donald Trump, the President of America, chose this vehement opponent of public education for all to head up the agency in charge of, guess what, public education. Rather than working to help improve our public schools, Trump divorced duo wants to take $20 billion from them and give it to, you guessed it, corporate chains who will be responsible for the education of the children of America. Now, this is all done, of course, in the, in, in, in the sense of what they term efficiency. Now, to see the efficiency of this scheme, all you have to do in America is look to Arizona, where the state Senate president, Steve Yarbrough, pushed a private school fund into law in Arizona. Now, one of the corporatized schools called Arizona Christian School Tuition Organization, or the ACSTO, has taken more than $73 million from the Arizona taxpayers paying its executive director $125,000 off the top. Now, his name is Steve Yarbrough. Now, the Arizona Christian Schools Tuition Organization pays millions of dollars to another for-profit corporation called HY Processing to actually do all the administration. The Y in HY, by the way, stands for, let's have a guess, Yarbrough. 
So this Arizona Christian Schools tuition organisation pays rent to its own landlord. Now, as Wall Street banksters, drug company gougers and airline fee fixers, as so many others have taught us over and over, most corporate executives are paid big bucks to take every shortcut, cheat and lie to squeeze out every dime for profit. Why would we now entrust our school children to them? Now, this is what is happening in America and here in Australia. We're well on the way to talking in the same language. Um, but not just the idea of... Well, here, here at the Dodds, we don't just talk about the idea of the corporate world being a significant threat to the education, the public education of the children of our nation. But as we often have to say, and we don't want to, but we have to say it, religious institutions also want to get their um, pound of flesh, their pieces of silver out of the taxpayer to educate uh, children in the way that various religious organisations think that is appropriate. Now, in the early days of Australia, as Jean often tells you, uh, they weren't allowed to do this. There was a wall of separation between religion and the state. And in the drafting of the Australian Constitution, this was arguably one of the founding precepts. Now, this has all been dismantled in our, in our modern-day 2017 Australia. But Jean, I think, has something to say about what was and perhaps what is when it comes to this wall of separation between religion, educa- religion and, and the state in terms of education and other, and other fields of, of public life in Australia. And we'll be returning to the Dogs Program to hear what Jean has to say after these messages. The Independent and Peaceful Australia Network presents War, Peace and Independence. Keep Australia out of US wars. Amidst an escalating threat of another major war breaking out, this timely conference will be held in Melbourne from the 8th to the 10th of September. The conference will address the struggle against US bases, drone warfare, peace as union business, US political and military influence and much more. For details and bookings, head to ipan.org.au or go to the Independent and Peaceful Australia Network's Facebook page, a 3CR supporter. Welcome back to the Dogs Program here on 3CR, 855 on AM dials and podcast on the WWWs. Well, yesterday um, I was up at Melbourne University and a lot of the members from the Dogs would have been... Uh, Well, they did want to be there to cheer me on when I was giving a paper on what had happened to Section 116. But unfortunately, they couldn't be because it was a bit, little bit elitist, this group. So um, I'm going to uh, do today what I did yesterday. And here it is. In, uh, In recent months... My husband, Richard Ely, who wrote a book in 1976 called Under God and Caesar, uh, which dealt with the history behind Section 116 and its insertion in the Australian Constitution, uh, received requests to write reviews of different articles for magazines, uh, academic magazines. And he discovered that these articles were, in fact, quoting him. On the phone to some of my academic friends in Sydney, I mentioned this and uh, I received the reply, Oh, didn't you know, Jean, Richard's book, Unto God and Caesar, together with Gregory's book on church and state in Victoria, have become classics in this field. So I wondered what had happened. What had happened when the High Court had ignored everything that Richard Ely had done in 1981, such that now people were questioning what had happened in 1981 and what Richard Ely had done. So uh, I wrote a paper, and it's called Can Any Good Come Out of Tasmania? Now, that's not Richard Ely, who in fact came out of Sydney, but it is going to be eventually about... Inglis Clark, the man who wrote the first draft of our Constitution in 1891 and what really Section 116 and the Establishment Clause uh, was about back historically. And I've come up with three questions in my researches. The first one is, what role does history play in Australian constitutional law? The second one is, what role has history played in Australian constitutional law? And the third one is, what role should history play in Australian constitutional law? 
Now, there's a big difference between what judges and lawyers do and what historians do. Uh, Australian judges and lawyers live in the shadow of principles which are hammered out by precedent and cases in which people were once engaged. And they are, in some sense, legal historians. But in an adversary system, judges have to make choices. And as Julius Stone, uh, who was a professor of law in the University of Sydney, as he would say, they have leeways for judicial choice. Now, as soon as I mention Julius Stone, you know that I am from Sydney, because down here in Melbourne and in a lot of uh, judicial circles, there is a belief that somehow the law is laid down and it's the, the job of the judges just to declare what the law is. But Julius Stone says, no, it's a bit more complicated than that. Uh, it has a social background, it has a political background, and uh, judges make choices, and they do. And the quality of their judgments depends upon the quality of their choices. Now, historians are a bit difficult, different. They are not bound by rules of constitutional interpretation. Uh, they can go to original documents, not secondary documents, and they can accept the past is a different country to be explored and questioned. And they can roam far and wide in the past, aware that the questions of the relationship, for example, between religion and the state have a long and troubled history, even in colonial Australia. Now, religious liberty and questions of religious liberty are perennial issues. Uh, and the High Court's judgment on the anti-establishment clause in Section 116 of the Australian Constitution, which says, The Commonwealth shall not make any law for establishing any religion. That issue is very complex. But the case law is startlingly simple. There's only one case, and it's the Dogs case of 1981. But no case better illustrates the difference between legal and historical judgments. Now, Section 116 of the Australian Constitution says this, Commonwealth shall not make any law for establishing any religion or for imposing any religious observance or for prohibiting the free exercise of any religion and no religious test shall be required as a qualification for any office or public trust under the Commonwealth. And that is made up of the First Amendment of the American Constitution and Article 6.3 of that Constitution of the United States. Uh, but it started its life in 1891 uh, when Inglis Clark put forward uh, Clause 46 and Clause 81 of the original draft. And Clark's clauses survived the 1891 and 1895 conventions, but they were knocked out uh, initially in February 7th and 8th of um, 1898 convention, the last convention, but they were put back in by Higgins because there had been another thing put into the Constitution. There was a preamble recognising Almighty God. Uh, so they did get back in and it had a chequered history in the 1890s. Now, in Australian constitutional law, the judges of the first High Court have chosen their history of constitutional interpretation and until 1988 they would not allow the original documents into the court as evidence. The convention debates of 1898 or even 1895 and 91 were not permitted in the court as evidence. And this rejection of access to the constitutional debates as primary sources lasted many generations, and it was in place in 1981. But the majority in 1891 based their judgments on a secondary source. It was a source written by Quick and Garin, and it was the annotated constitution of the Australian Commonwealth. And uh, Barwick... Uh, agreed with this. He said, no, we don't want the convention debates in. An academic exercise to explain historically why the Constitution was cast in a particular form as one thing, to identify the meaning of the words in which the Constitution is expressed by examination of its discursive development is quite another. So what did Quick and Garin say that the Establishment Clause of Section 116 meant? They said, by the establishment of religion is meant the erection and recognition of a state church. That was what they said. 
And that was what the High Court majority judgment went along with. However, in 1976, Richard Ely, in Chapter 12 of his Under God and Caesar, had questioned the Quick and Garin interpretation because he had read the original convention documents and he saw what Higgins and Barton and O'Connor and George Reed and others said. Now, these people, Barton, O'Connor and Higgins, were on the first High Court, or certainly they were one of the later justices of the High Court. And Quick and Garin's analysis of the scope and meaning of Section 116, especially of the no-establishment provision, is so often shot through with misstatement and tendentious rhetoric that from the point of view of understanding the original meaning of this section of the Constitution, according to Richard Ely, it should be disregarded. But the majority uh, went along with it. Justice Barwick held that uh, to establish that the word any religion meant an institution of the Commonwealth, part of the Commonwealth establishment. Gibbs said that any religion meant a state or national religion or church. Stevens said that um, any religion meant creating a state church. Justice Mason considered the clause meant the authority of establishment or recognition by the state of a religion or a church as a national institution, which is what Quick and Garin said. Wilson, Justice Wilson, inferred that there was a legislative intent to adopt a narrow notion of establishment, namely that which requires statutory recognition of a religion as a national institution. So the word any religion became a state religion. Now, Justice Aiken, who actually had a conflict of interest, the plaintiffs believe, he'd taken a brief from the church school interest before the case started uh, when he was a QC. He didn't write a separate judgment. He just agreed with the majority. Justice Murphy, in dissent, however, said, the ordinary principle that constitutional provisions should be read not narrowly but with all the generality which the words admit strongly supports the adoption of a more general reading, namely separation interpretation. Now, he went to the American precedents and he also indicated that he had read R.G. Ely's 1976 book. But he quoted extensively from Jefferson's letter to the Danbury Baptists, which is a very interesting letter at all, uh, indeed. And Jefferson said that um, the, that the um, legislators should make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, thus building a wall of eternal separation between church and state. The High Court judges also chose their history. Barwick in particular went to England. He went back to England. Uh, According to one commentator, he had a Washminster interpretation. And uh, his case law is a very strange case called the General Assembly of Free Church of Scotland versus Lord Overton, which is not English actually, it's Scottish and it's between two parts of the Free Presbyterian Church and it's about property. So it's a very strange case to go back to for um, an Australian constitutional interpretation. Gibbs um, said that it, it meant what it meant in 1900 to constitute a particular religion. Stephen also was a little bit Stephen was a bit more conscious that there was a history in Australia in the 19th century, abolition of state financial aid to churches, but he said they didn't mention the word establishment in those, um, in those particular legislatures. Mason just went with Quick and Garin, and Wilson uh, said, well, yes, you can't go to the convention debates, but he believes that it would be wrong to attach undue significance to the history of the clause. Murphy, as I've indicated before, went to the American cases, to American case law and history, as well as to Australian history, and he discounted the Quick and Garin uh, view of what it meant. Now, since 1981, there's been a lot of uh, things happened. First of all, there was the 1988 referendum to extend Section 116 to the states, which failed. Then there's been case law, 
There's been uh, an interesting marriage celibate case, Nelson versus Fish, which was upheld. The dog's case was upheld. Then there was a planning matter, a Hoxton Park Residence Action Group versus Liverpool City Council in 2010-2012, over that period. And that dealt with a, uh, a Muslim school in the Liverpool area, Hoxton Park in Sydney, and a mosque in the school. At the first instance, it was thrown out. Uh, because the dog's case was applied. But then in the New South Wales Court of Appeal, a judge called Baston and his fellow judges went along with him, said, no, this is a bit more uh, complicated, and he distinguished the dog's case on the facts. He said that in the dog's case, they weren't dealing with religious institutions like mosques. Well, he was wrong there. Uh, evidence was given that at uh, Churchill and Geelong there were schools being used as churches. Uh, And then he said that uh, perhaps the dog's case was not settled at all because there had been a lot of developments since then. And perhaps the most important one was the Acts Interpretation Amendment Act of 1984, Section 7, which allowed extrinsic material into the court so that uh, by 1988 you had the convention debates allowed into the High Court. And then there were the Williams versus Commonwealth school chaplains cases in 2012. And although the High Court refused to really look at the Establishment Clause of Section 116 in these cases, Williams, who was a secular parent, who didn't want chaplains in state schools, won on both occasions. And then, fourthly, you've had a lot of academic commentaries. Now, let's think about this 1988 referendum. If you look at the Commonwealth shall not make any law for establishing any religion and turn it into the Commonwealth shall not make any law for establishing a state religion or church, And then you go ahead and you say, or for imposing any religious observance of a state religion or church, or for prohibiting the free exercise of a state religion or church, and no religious test of a state religion or church shall be required as qualification for any office or public trust under the Commonwealth, then that actually means in the end that the Commonwealth can make a law for establishing any religion, because it's not a state, religion or church. The actual meaning of the clause has been turned on its head. Now, the plaintiffs, uh, the dog's plaintiffs, realised this and they didn't want it brought through to the state, so they put a two-page advertisement in the papers. And uh, it was a national paper, and uh, the next day, or that day that that it appeared, uh, the people in Canberra in Parliament went ballistic. We were called for everything that... um, that you could imagine uh, the dogs were on that day. And then the next day, I was in the same uh, office as Ray Nielsen, who was the uh, president of the dogs in those days, and I heard him on the telephone. And he was ringing up the Catholic Education Office of Queensland, and I heard him tell them that if the referendum won and Section 116 was brought through to the states, he would be in the state courts the next day. Within days, the Roman Catholic Church and the Coalition were opposing that part of the referendum and it failed. So uh, that's what happened there. The academic commentaries on the Establishment Clause can be separated into three types. There's the National Church Interpretation, the Non-Preferential or Limited Neutrality Interpretation and the Separationist or Strict Neutrality uh, Interpretation. The main National Church Interpretation, that is going along Hollis Bolus with the Dogs case, uh, was taken up in 1988 uh, by Joshua Pools from Newman College in a very learned article. But he ended up uh, deciding that the effect of any constitutional provision as loaded with value judgments as one involving religion will inevitably be dependent not so much on the final wording of that section but on the desired outcome sought by the judges applying it. I thought that was very revealing. 
And uh, in 2008, uh, in academic uh, textbooks for students, uh, that was the dog's case or the dog's um, majority judgment was approved of. Now, the limited neutrality, non-preferential or non-discrimination interpretation has uh, attracted a lot of people. In 1992, Stephen McLeish, who's now Justice McLeish of the Victorian Court of Appeal from Melbourne University in those days, and he also went to Harvard, he, he pointed out that uh, there was no freedom from religion anymore. And he wanted to suggest that perhaps secularism was a quasi-religion. In his uh, articles, he discovered Andrew Inglis Clark and the Tasmanian historians of the 60s and 70s like John Reynolds, Justice Neasy and Richard Ely. Uh, that was a very interesting article that he wrote in the Monash University Review of 1992, Making Sense of Religion and the Constitution, a Fresh Start for Section 116. In 2013-14, another um, commentator, um, Luke Beck from Sydney University, who went to the University of Western Sydney, was writing a great deal about the constitutional debates. He wanted people to look at what Higgins, who finally got Section 116 into the Constitution, was really about. And he uh, went to Richard Ely also, but he didn't go back to Inglis Clark. And he argued for a limited neutrality position, namely a prohibition on federal expenditure for religious purposes such as for religious activities. A halfway house. Certainly he wasn't going to question state aid to private schools. Uh, now, Professor Reed Mortensen took a similar view from the University of South Queensland. And he was responding to the Williams cases, the chaplaincy cases of 2013-14. And uh, he, he really, uh, he wasn't prepared quite to say that the majority judges got it wrong, but he was prepared to say that the majority judges in the, in the dog's case, it was not a high point for the uh, High Court of Australia. But he ended up also with the uh, non-preferential, non-discrimination interpretation but he defined what he meant. He said the aim of the principle of non-discrimination is to coordinate, sometimes through extremely messy arrangements, Australia's religious and moral pluralism and to assure an equal access to the public square. Uh, then you had the separation of strict neutrality interpretation and Richard Ely in 1986 I decided that he'd have a look at the English situation. If Barwick wanted to apply an English uh, interpretation, then what had gone on in England? And he looked at every single statute, English statute, from 1300 to 1900. But he decided that even, uh, even then, uh, the dog's case really should have been otherwise decided. Because in the late 19th century in England, there were two views of establishment, that of the High Church after the Oxford Movement and that of the Erastian Church. The Erastian Church, in the Erastian Church, the state tells the church what to do uh, and uh, in the High Church, the church tells the state what to do. So um, that was a very interesting article which has been picked up by Carolyn Evans at Melbourne University and others as well. Uh, but in 1990, W. Sadursky from Sydney University, who was obviously a secularist and who knew his American history, pointed out that the only escape from an unattractive dilemma of either favouring religion to the detriment of non-religious beliefs or interpreting genuinely secular beliefs as religious, that dilemma could only be resolved by a strict separation interpretation. In 1993, Justice Michael Kirby went to Suva, and so did the dogs. And Justice uh, Michael Kirby took a separationist position and invited the Defence of Government Schools people present to go back to the High Court, which they, um, they declined graciously because they noted the predilections of the majority of members of the court. Uh, in 2006, 
Helen Irving, who is the Director of Julius Stone Institute of Jurisprudence at the University of Sydney, came down to Melbourne and addressed the, um, the rationalists, the, uh, the secularists and the rationalists, who have become in recent years very aggressive in Australia. And uh, she took a very firm uh, separation line. And she said that the High Court just got it wrong when they concluded that Section 116 was not intended as a broad statement of separation of church and state. Uh, so there you have the different commentaries, and they all agree, with the exception of Josh, uh, Joshua Pools, on one thing. The historical analyses of the meaning of the Establishment Clause in 1900 were odd, inadequate or just plain wrong. But what was really happening when Inglis Clarke proposed his version of the American First Amendment in the 1891 draft constitution and Higgins finally persuaded a majority of convention delegates to insert what became section 116 into the constitution? Uh, and what do historians have to offer here? In the last decade, historians and sociologists attempting to explain the erosion of religious liberty in Australia most particularly freedom from religion, and the growth of glaring inequalities in educational opportunities in Australia are asking what really happened back in 1981 when we lost our religious liberty. Uh, you should have a look here at um, Carolyn Evans, uh, Marion Maddox, uh, T. Stanley, Religion After Secularisation in Australia, published in 2015, and D. Merrill, Secular Conversion, Political Institutions and Religious Education in the United States and Australia. There's a lot of work now being done, mainly in Sydney, with perhaps the exception of Carolyn Evans. And, of course, long before the Dogs High Court case in 1981, Australian colonial historians had charted the 1836 abandonment of the established English church in colonial New South Wales, the abandonment of state aid to religion in the 1860s, and the abandonment of state aid to religious schools in the later 19th century. So when Edmund Barton and others told Henry Bourne's Higgins in the 1898 constitutional debates, there was no need for a religious liberty clause based on the American First Amendment in the Australian Constitution. It wasn't only because the federal parliament wouldn't have the express power to deal with it through what's now Section 51. It was also because they believed they'd solved the religious problem. They had already separated religion from the state. That's what they believed. And um, Edmund Barton was very particular about this. He said, we are a progressive nation. We don't have any part of religion and the state here in Australia. Well, Higgins didn't believe that. The recognition petitions and Section 116 are of particular interest. But why did the Quick and Garren account gain such traction? The historian Lanors has been criticised and held accountable by Stephen McLeish for giving air to the Quick and Garren account, but um, he, he, uh, he's wrong, actually, because Lanors remarked briefly but aptly that English Clark could have told them how it got into the Constitution. Now, Inglis Clark's well known down in Tasmania. Everybody knows about Inglis Clark. Uh, he was a Republican, he was an Americanophile, and he was a hard liberal who was prepared to take on uh, people who wanted state aid for their churches or their particular schools. And there is evidence of Clark's strict separationist position in the Tasmanian debate on the Draft Commonwealth Bill of 1897, an 1885 essay entitled Denominational Education, and a short essay entitled The Preamble to the Constitution of the Commonwealth of Australia. And in the Tasmanian debate on the Draft Commonwealth Bill of 1897, he pointed out that the object of the amendment was to secure perfect religious equality in both directions, preventing any particular benefit or support being given to any form of religion. Because he wanted to strengthen Section 116, he wanted to say that 
that it should include no support whatever should be given to religion. Uh, and he failed. He failed. And Justice Wilson was prepared to bring up the fact that he failed to get that section in. Clark also wrote a very interesting article which was in manuscript form but has since been published uh, in a book produced by the Tasmanian Historical Department, History Department, about denominational education. And in this he argued that giving money to particularly the Catholic portion of the population, uh, the whole of that portion of its revenue which it derives from them would be to make a state within a state, an imperium in imperio. And separate grants by the state in aid of denominational schools, he said, upon the principle of payment by results, must necessarily amount to state endowment of particular forms of religion. But the most interesting article he wrote, again in manuscript form, but it has been published, thanks to Richard Ely, uh, in the Australian Law Journal, was his article on the preamble to the Constitution of the Commonwealth of Australia. Clark, the hard liberal who believed in fundamental laws for the protection of the natural rights of the individual beyond the reach of the majority of the hour, wrote fighting words on the recognition of God in the preamble to the Constitution. Now, Clark did write torturously, but it was very fierce. To require, he wrote, a minority of citizens to expatriate themselves in order to escape from membership of a nation or community, which by a vote of a majority of its members undertakes to make a corporate confession of any religious doctrine or belief, is to use political and consequently physical force in the name of religion as clearly and directly as it was at any time used for the burning or expulsion of heretics. By this time, Clark, who had been brought up a Baptist, was a Unitarian. And he didn't, uh, he didn't criticise the Catholics who he said, well, you would expect them to go for recognition of God and for position, power and money. No, his criticism was for the Protestants who should have known better. And uh, at this stage of his life, like Oliver Wendell Holmes, as a Unitarian, he uh, mentioned Milton and his allegation that new presbyter is but old priest writ large. So what role should history play in constitutional law? The issues of freedom of conscience, religious liberty and religion and the state are perennial and they raise their head in different guises in every generation. What, for example, would be the fate at the high court level of a Commonwealth ban on the hijab or the burqa at the moment? When a problem of interpretation arises under the Australian Constitution, is the judicial duty to consult the historical records to discover the original intention of the founders, or should they regard the constitutional document as having been set free in 1901 from the intentions, beliefs and wishes of those who drafted it? And the most interesting thing that I have to tell you is that the person who upholds the originalist view of constitutional law is Greg Craven, Craven from the University of Notre Dame and the person who believes that we should not uh, indulge in ancestor worship is Michael Kirby. Bring down the covenant, bring it to its heel. The seventh annual Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair is on Saturday, August the 12th from 10am to 6pm. The book fair showcases more than 40 stalls and a program of workshops. It's a great opportunity to be introduced to new ideas, to challenge your thinking and to meet with like-minded folk. It's free and we also provide free childcare. At the Brunswick Town Hall on Saturday, August the 12th from 10am till 6pm. Find out more at www.amelbournebookfair.org or find us on Facebook, the Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair. The Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair is a 3CR supporter. Welcome back to the Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 on the AM Dial and podcast on the WWWs. Thank you, Jean. Um, she just, for the benefit of our listeners, gave a talk that she gave at Melbourne University just yesterday. Um, if you could have coughed up the 50 bucks to be there to hear her speak, then um, congratulations. That's the second time you've heard it. But for those of us who don't have that spare 50 bucks, um, it's good to have the Dogs Program. Very learned and very interesting. It gives a very, I don't know, an overarching concept 
of separation of religion and the state in Australia from, from Federation until today, and I think goes a long way to explain the problems that we found ourselves in because of mixed, well, I don't know, I, I would hate to call the, um, Section 116 a metaphor, but um, they've mixed the metaphors up so it's just it's been, been read down and out of the Constitution, and that presents problems for this current generation and generations into the future. Um, here on the Dogs Program, I'm going to change the sort of tune a little bit. Um, I'm going to go away from sort of constitutional issues and talk about psychological issues. <laughs> um, because in Australia today, um, there is a, I don't know, there's a preoccupation with um, separating children out. Separating children out on the basis of religion, separating children out from each other on the basis of the income of their parents, and then separating them out on the basis of, of their perceived intelligence. Um, the whole sort of private school thing markets itself as a... In a private school where you spend a lot of money, your child, who is very, very intelligent, will have all their needs serviced and they won't be have to deal with, with all the other children who aren't quite as smart as yours. It's a subtext. Um, I'm, I'm sort of stating it in a sort of bald and bland and sort of bold way, but it is a subtext that actually many, many private schools, certainly those that cost a lot of money, put forward as the reason why parents should spend money um, to send their children to those schools because we deal with all the smart kids. But there's been a lot of research done, um, which I think is absolutely fascinating, and it's, it's well, because this is a field that I've worked in in the past, and there is no such thing as a gifted child. I'm saying there is no such thing as a gifted child. And this has actually come out of a a sort of, well, a sort of a whole sort of barrage, a whole raft of new research. And it's come to the head when um, just recently, quite tragically, in her early 40s, a Fields Medal winner, a woman, um, Mariam Mizakhani, who won the Fields Medal as a a mathematician. Fields Medal, by the way, is a sort of Nobel Prize for, for, for mathematics. She was a Stanford professor since the age of 31. She was Iranian-born, she was an academic, and she's basically been described as a genius, a gifted person, a gifted child. Now, it would be easy to assume that someone as special as this woman who's just recently and tragically passed away must have been one of those gifted children who excelled from babyhood. Um, The ones who read Harry Potter at five or admitted to Mensa not much later on. Uh, the gifted child is one who takes maths GCSE while still, you know, maths VCE, I should say, while still sitting in, 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 in a life of single figures. All the rarities such as Ruth Lawrence, who was admitted to Oxford while her contemporaries were still in primary school. But look closer and a different story emerges. Mirza Kahani was born in Tehran one of three siblings in a middle-class family whose father was an engineer. The only part of her childhood that was anyway out of the ordinary was during she was born during the Iran-Iraq War, which made life hard for the family in her early years. Thankfully, the war ended around the time she went to secondary school. She did go to a high-selective girls' school, but maths, in which she got the Fields Medal, wasn't her interest. Reading was. She loved novels and would read anything she could lay her hands on. Together with her best friend, she would prowl the bookstores on the way home from school for works to buy and consume. As for maths, she did rather poorly at the first couple of years of her middle school, but became interested when her elder brother told her about what he'd learned. He showed a famous maths problem from a magazine that fascinated her, and she was hooked after that. And, of course, the rest is mathematical history. Is her background unusual? Apparently not. Most Nobel laureates were unexceptional in childhood. Einstein was slow to talk and was dubbed dopey by one of the, by, by one of the family maids. He failed the general part of the entry test to the Zurich, Zurich Polytechnic, although they let him in on because of his high physics and math scores. He struggled at work initially, failing to get academic posts and being passed over for promotion at the Swiss Patent Office because he wasn't good enough at machine technology. But he kept plugging away, that old Einstein, and eventually rewrote the laws of Newtonian mechanics. <laughs> Lewis Terman, a pioneer American educational psychologist, set up a study all the way back in 1921 and followed 1,470 Californians who excelled at the newly available IQ tests. Throughout their lives, he did it for all of their lives, none ended up as the great thinkers of their age. <laughs> 
that Terman expected that they would. But he did actually miss two future Nobel Prize winners, Luke Alvarez and William Shockley, both physicists who he dismissed at the time of the study um, as their test scores were not high enough. There is a canon of research on high performance built out of the last century that suggests it goes way beyond the testing of intelligence. On top of that, research is clear that brains are malleable, new neural pathways can be forged, and IQ is not fixed. Just because you can read Harry Potter at five doesn't mean you'll be still ahead of your contemporaries in your teens. Gifted children are the children of gifted parents. Oh, well, yes. Anyway, according to um, Professor Deborah Eyre, who's collaborated in a book called Great Minds and How to Grow Them, the latest neuroscience and psychological research suggests that most people, unless they are cognitively impaired, can reach standards of performance associated in school with the gifted and the talented. However, they must be taught the right attitudes and approaches to their learning and develop attitudes of high performance. That is, and here are the three things that are required. Firstly, curiosity. Secondly, persistence. That's it. Pretty much, well, hard work and persistence can be deemed to be the same thing. But if you do the work and you're curious, you're going to find yourself developing the attributes of a high performer. And she, I mean, if you have curiosity and persistence, you're going to have high performance learning. Critically, they need the right support, the right support in developing those approaches at home as well as school. So, is there even such a thing as a gifted child? It's actually a highly contested area. Professor Anders Ericsson, an educational psychologist at Florida State University, is the co-author of Peak, Secrets from the New Science of Expertise. After research going back to 1980 into talents at the, at the heart of performance. Now, deliberate practice stretches you every step of the way, and around 10,000 of us, 10,000 hours of it, is what actually produces an expert. It's not a magic number. The highest performers move on to doing a whole lot more, of course, and like various Nobel Prize winners, often find their own unique perspectives along the way. And there's, a, there's, there's actually a whole sort of bevy of work um, that's now coming through the sort of neuro, neuropsychological sort of researches, which goes to show that gifted children, that's really not the point. You need curiosity, persistence, and a supportive environment. If you have those three things, you're doing the right thing by the child, and that is an environment in which a school, all schools in Australia, should be providing. Now we're moving on, unfortunately, to back to the real world. And the real world is in New South Wales. They're going to actually start putting in selective primary schools for gifted children. Yep, you heard me right. Yep, selective private schools for, for the gifted children. I thought educational psychologists had got rid of Bert and his intelligence, uh, his intelligence uh, um, ideas back in the 1960s. Well, Jay Jong, Jay Jong, a senior lecturer in Uni- University of New South Wales School of Education and a lead researcher of the Gifted Education Program. See, the University of New South Wales, they actually have a gifted students' education program. So one form, the broader psychological principles say that the gifted child doesn't exist. It's just curiosity, persistence and environment. But in New South Wales, they've got a whole department for gifted education. Oh, well, in the old days, of course, you, you could be trained to um, do your intelligence tests. I know, my mother trained me because she was quite, quite determined I would get to a selective high school. But um, you could do this. In fact, intelligence tests test the determination of middle-class parents. That's what they test. And I thought this had been proved back in the 1960s. Over and over again. But Dr Jung at the University of New South Wales says that we are not taking care of gifted students at lower primary level. The earlier educational intervention is provided, the more likely their potential will be realised. Oh, my goodness. Australia is so... Let's just think about it. If what it takes... To nurture the talents of a child are to nurture curiosity, encourage persistence and provide a supportive environment. That's what schools should be doing. You don't take a whole bunch of kids, label them Gifflin and and then extract them from the normal classroom situation and put them in some accelerated stream when they're four. (laughs) It's just, it's, uh, anyway, I, I just find this kind of stuff... Mind-blowing. Well, at least in the but old days there was an understanding that there were late developers so that in the selective system there were a large number of children who came in at year four who, hadn't, who had developed and who were 
not only as intelligent, but in fact more intelligent than the children who had been selected out at, at um, the age of 12. Um, I really think this is a very, very sad backward step. In well, it's age. a terrible backward step because the whole thing is the fundamental premise of expensive, independent private schools. That's the whole premise of it. There, 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 actually, there's two. I'll be telling a lie. So that the only reason why you have expensive private schools is so the people of wealth can separate their children out from the unintelligent and the poor and the unwashed. Uh, no, the, the other reason, of course, is you buy your child a social network for the future because everyone knows in Australia if you want to make money, it's not what you know, it's who you know. So if you can put your child in a, in a, in a hotbed of potential networked other rich people, you're going to be doing the best, best for them in, in terms of their, their future, future wealth because they'll know all the other wealthy people. But from an educational perspective, because I don't care about rich networks, obviously, otherwise I wouldn't be on 3CR. I don't, I don't care about rich networks, but I do care about the fact that now the research, of course it's showing that to, to, to get the best out of a child, you've created an environment that allows for both curiosity and persistence, and you sit back and you watch the child grow. Well, if you don't sit back, you actually get in there, because providing environments sometimes can be very challenging, hard work, as all teachers will know. But what about but a you child who's but, got empathy but, and but, understanding but, uh, of their fellow citizens? Oh, well, I mean, oh, well, of course. I mean... You don't separate them out. You don't separate out the smart ones from the dumb ones when they're four because that's what they're talking about here. And they're talking about it as, well, all the, all, all the poor intelligent children aren't getting stretched enough and all that sort of stuff. No, education you, it's not just about the school. It's about the families, it's about the community, it's about their parents, it's about the teachers, it's about everyone working together. And you resource it properly so it works. That's what a gold standard education system is. And that's what countries like Finland worked out a long time ago. And that's what and we're still we're doing in our, in our state schools. Indeed. Anyway, Jane, I just thought I'd... I mean, we've been talking about so many different things today. Constitutional issues and psychological issues between... And, the, and of course, the fundamental differences between public education, which has the values of inclusion, and private education, which by definition does not. But we'll be back to discuss more next week, of course, because the dogs have to keep fighting because the fight needs to be fought. But if you are interested in what I was talking about initially in the press release or indeed anything um, we've been speaking about, you can contact us at our website at www.adogs.info. That's www.adogs.info. Until next week, of course, it's bye for now.
Yeah. 